0: Have you ever uh, made a promise and then realize after you made the promise that it was gonna cost you a lot to keep your promise? So remember, you know, tell your kids, yeah, I'll, I'll take you to the park and then you get this big project at work and you realize I'm gonna be up all night, but I gave my word, I gotta take my kids, I gotta follow through on that promise. Or you tell your roommates, I'll clean up the mess that I made in the kitchen and then you remember, oh, I have a final tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., right? And it's gonna cost me, but I gotta follow through tell your girlfriend, I'm going to get you a a diamond, and then you realize that diamonds cost a lot of money. (laughs) Okay, I gave my word, I got to follow through. It's a really interesting proverb, one of my favorites, Proverbs 15, it says uh, that that person that can dwell in a sense close to God, in intimacy with God, is one who, he swears to his own hurt, but doesn't change. In other words, he gives his word, and if it's going to cost him to follow through, he's going to follow through, no matter what the cost, because that's what God is like. That, that's the person who dwells in intimacy with God because that's, that's what God does. God makes promises. God keeps promises, even if his promises cost him dearly. So God made a promise to Abraham, and he made a promise through Abraham to all peoples so that he would fix everything that we have broken. And God came through, and it cost him, but he gave the life of his precious son what was most valuable to him so that he could keep his word and that's the gospel that's where we actually started our study of the book of romans i'm going to take you back to chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 which are kind of theme verses right for the entire book of romans it reads like this paul says for i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And what Paul is arguing in the book of Romans is the gospel, which is we are not righteous. We are not rightly related to God. We're not right inside of ourselves, but God is righteous. And what he does is he gives us the gift of his righteousness through Jesus Christ and his death and his burial and resurrection as a free gift. And when we believe in Jesus, our sin is replaced by Christ's righteousness. Debt of sins is removed, and we have eternal life. And it's from faith to to faith, from faith from beginning to end. We don't earn it. We just receive it as a gift. That's the gospel. And Paul goes on, and he says, this is actually for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why is it for the Jew first? Because God made a promise first to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants and so the gospel goes to the Jew first. So everywhere that Paul went and he began to preach the gospel, he would go in that city first to the synagogue and he would present the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews and then he would move out to the to the Gentiles or the non-Jews. And what Paul began to experience is that though on the day of Pentecost the entire church was Jewish and the early church was almost entirely Jewish as Paul began to preach the gospel, Throughout the Roman Empire, fewer and fewer Jews responded to the gospel. They became harder and harder and harder, and more and more Gentiles became open to the gospel. And so by the end of the first century, the church was almost entirely Gentile and not Jewish, And if you look at the Jewish Christian population today, it's really small. In Israel, there are 9 million people. 7 million of those are Jewish. And the number of Jewish followers of Jesus as their Messiah is about 13,000. So you do the quick math in your head. That's a little more than one-tenth of 1%. Well, if the gospel was for the Jew first, has God failed? Is God failing to keep His promises? Well, that's really the issue that Paul is wrestling with here in uh, Romans chapter 9. I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Messiah, the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, I know it's not possible, but I wish that I was cut off from God so that my, my people, these are my people that God has made promises to. Promises to remove their debt of sin and give them the Spirit, but also to give them a land and a future and a hope and protection from their enemies and prosperity and put all things right. And now they seem to be completely outside of God's promises. And so the question that Paul is going to ask and answer in Romans 9 through 11 is this Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Has God been unfaithful to keep his promises to Israel? And maybe you're saying to yourself, Well, okay, but so what? Because I'm not Jewish. Why does that matter to me? Well, it matters in this sense. If God hasn't been faithful to keep his promises to Israel, how do you know he's going to be faithful to keep his promises to you? All right, so we ended chapter 8 with this. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believed in Jesus, Christ is in you, and you are in Christ, and you belong to him forever, or do you? Will God be faithful to keep his promises to you? he hasn't been faithful to keep his promises to Israel. So Paul asks this question, he answers this question like this. He says, no, God has always acted consistently with his promise. Read me chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That is, God has not broken promise. Now, as we start Romans chapter 9, some of you are thinking, all right, well, we'll finally unravel uh, the doctrine of predestination. Right? But that's actually not what Romans 9 is about. That's not the point of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are all a defense of the character of God. Right? They're a defense of the faithfulness of God. So here's a preview, what we're going to cover in the next three weeks. Romans chapter 9 this morning. Israel's current status is consistent with God's promises and his character. So Paul looks around and he sees that the Jews are not responding to the gospel. They're, a, they're an increasing minority within the body of Christ. And he's going to argue that Israel's current status, status remains consistent with God's promises and also who God is, his character. Romans chapter 10. Israel is actually fully capable for its current status. The reason Israel is not enjoying the promises of God is because Israel has rejected the promises of God. And then Romans 11, Israel's future will be fulfilled according to the promises of God. That is, there are future promises that have not been yet fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled because God always keeps his word. Now in Romans chapter nine, Paul is going to give us then four reasons that we can, in fact, trust God. Right? Four reasons that we can trust that God keeps His word. Let's begin reading in verse six. He says, "But it is not as though the word of God has failed, because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but." Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Paul's first argument is this. God doesn't change the rules. His ways never change. God is always acting consistent with his promises. Now, when my kids were little, we played lots of games and uh, one of the things that I noticed very early on is that my kids uh, like to, to modify the rules in the middle of the game, right? I don't have to make that move. nor I get to make a move like this, right? And, there are, and they, they say, well, yeah, that's in the rules. And so I always kept the rules very close by. Right, so I say, you know, actually, no, that's the, the rules say, no, you can't do that, right? And, and usually it was the older oppressing the younger because the younger couldn't read yet. So I had to read the rules and interpret the rules and say, no, this is actually what the rules say. We gotta, we've got to live according to the rules. We play the game according to the rules. God doesn't change the rules in the middle. His ways never change. And what Paul argues here first is, look, God's promise wasn't to every physical descendant of Abraham, In fact, the promise isn't based on birthright and the promise isn't based on physical descent because Isaac wasn't actually even Abraham's first son. Ishmael was Abraham's first son. And another often overlooked fact is that Isaac had more kids later, right? I mean, Abraham had more kids later. He kept having kids. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, it says, Now Abraham took yet another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokson, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. In other words, uh, yeah, he was old, but man, he was prolific, right? He kept going. And I'm not going to make you memorize that as the application point today, but just kind of file it away. The promise wasn't given to every physical descendant of Abraham. Right? That's not how God made the promises, nor was the promise based on human merit. Verse 10, he goes on. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated what's his point? Well, Rebecca had uh, twins. She had two kids. Before they were born, God made a choice. When it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, it's not that he emotionally hated Esau and loved emotionally Jacob. So I'm choosing Jacob, the younger, the second born of the twins, and I'm going to choose while they're still in their mother's womb before they've done anything, good or bad. So it's proven they didn't deserve it, right? Esau, Was a bit of a a shady, shifty kind of character, right? He came out and they said he's like red all over, like came out with a beard. I mean, he's just like, he's just like super burly, tough guy. And he was just, he grew up and was very passionate, kind of controlled by the passions of his flesh. Uh, Jacob was uh, no better. In fact, his name means deceiver, which always just stuns me, right? So the baby comes out, they go, okay, (laughs) we're. Esau means red, we're gonna call him red. This one we've got deceiver. Clearly, clearly, he's got a dark future in front of him. Right? So, I mean, it wasn't as if either of them deserved it, Esau or Jacob. Before they came out of the womb, God said, I'm gonna let the younger receive the promise. Paul's point is this: the promise is based on God's choice. God has a right to choose. God has a right to choose. And he's always chosen one or a few in order to bless the many. That's how God has always patterned things. So the fact that most of the Jews in Paul's day and most of the Jews even in our day have said no to Jesus as Messiah doesn't prove that God was unfaithful to his promise because his promise never applied to every physical descendant. And that's Paul's first argument, which raises another problem. If God chooses and he chooses according to his own sovereign free choice, is God unjust? How can God choose and hold men responsible for the choice that he made? Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there may it never be. In other words, Paul anticipates. The question will be asked, how can God be just? And he's choosing one and not choosing another. What about the person's choice or the person's responsibility? And I'm going to tell you, what the Bible does is it creates this tension for us and never resolves it. It lays, lays it side by side, this tension, which is... God's in charge. God's free. God gets to choose. God knows all things. Also, people are responsible for all of their choices, and they make real choices with real consequences, and God holds them responsible for that. And both of these things are absolutely true. And the tension is not resolved. So, you know, you say to yourself, well, how do I resolve it? I'm gonna tell you, I don't know. And I'm gonna tell you, you don't know. And Romans 9 is not gonna resolve that for you. Let me give you an illustration of the tension. One of my favorite verses that illustrates this, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he said, This man, that is Jesus, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So was Jesus going to the cross God's plan? Absolutely. It's his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. He knew what was best, and he acted on what was best, and he made it happen, and also you did it, and you're responsible for it. And there's going to be consequences on you if you don't repent from it. Both are true. John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, that is, those who believe in him, he gives eternal life, who were born not of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. Both and. Both and. In other words, the Bible lays these two things side by side and doesn't resolve them. Romans 9 seems to emphasize God's freedom, God's choice, God's sovereignty. Romans 10 emphasizes Israel's responsibility. And Paul doesn't get philosophical and try to fix it. Instead, he concludes this argument, the end of chapter 11, I want you to turn there, in verse 33, Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul says, God is absolutely sovereign, and he knows all things, and he chooses, and man is responsible. We should worship him. In other words, Romans 9 is not going to resolve some of your your own theological tension that you have inside. It's going to drive you to worship. And you should not be surprised that there are things about an infinite God that you cannot understand. You know, we say to ourselves, well, but someday I'll, I'll, be, I'll be face-to-face and I can ask God my questions and I'll get everything resolved, right? And I'm going to say, I don't think that that's the way it's going to work. Because God will always be infinite and you will always be finite, which means there will always be things about God that you cannot grasp. One of the beauties for me personally Uh, I I just love to learn, and I think, you know what heaven's going to be like is we're always going to be learning more about God, right? There's, There's a depth to God's personality and character and works that we just can't get to the bottom of, but we just keep learning and learning and learning and learning, and our minds are blown every day. Oh my gosh, that's what God is like. And we can never wrap our minds around an infinite, eternal God because we are created and we are finite. And so where does Paul get to the end of this? Well, he lays the tension out in front of us, and he says, Let's worship. That's what God is like. So, Romans 9, 10, and 11 weren't written to answer some of the the questions we might have. It's answering the question, is God faithful to his promises? So, his first response is this. His ways never change. Second, his sovereignty preserved his people. Chapter 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he, has, whom he desires. Now, I've thrown out a huge theological word here, sovereignty. And some of you have read a lot of theology about God's sovereignty. And what I want you to do is I want you to set all of that aside. Because theologians import ideas into biblical words that aren't necessarily in the text. What does the text mean by the word sovereignty? Interestingly, the word that's translated sovereignty in the Bible is actually rarely translated sovereignty. It's usually translated differently. So I want to give you one illustration of this. Psalm chapter 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom or his sovereignty, his reign extends over Everything, so the word for sovereignty in the Old Testament is the word for kingship or rule or reign, and what it's pointing to is God's authority, that is his right to rule over everything. God has the right to rule over everything, he has the might to rule over everything, he has the wisdom to rule over everything, that is his sovereignty. How does he exercise his sovereignty? Well, the biblical narrative shows you how God exercises his right and his might and his wisdom. And what you'll see is God doesn't use his sovereignty to destroy human responsibility. God doesn't use his sovereignty to remove human choice or to remove consequences from humans. Instead, because we're made in the image of God, we actually make choices with real consequences because we've been made in the image of God, granting to us a limited form of sovereignty. God has all sovereignty, that he he has all power, all might, wisdom he has the authority and the right to rule over all things and he grants us the right in his image to make choices with consequences and he weaves the two together so daniel chapter 4 it says of nebuchadnezzar his sovereignty was removed from him or his right to rule why because he wasn't doing it god's way He was trying to do it independently from God so that right to rule and the might to rule was removed from Nebuchadnezzar but God has the right to rule over everything and so what does he do he uses his sovereignty his right and his might to rescue Israel through a hard-hearted ruler because God is more powerful than the most powerful ruler Pharaoh on earth and he uses his power his strength his right to rule to move Pharaoh's heart to deliver his people. In other words, there is no Israel if God hadn't exercised his sovereignty. Make sense? There's no Israel at all. Israel disappears. They remain in slavery and their, their, their tribes are dissipated and they're, they're, they intermarry and they're gone. There's no Israel except for the fact that God in his sovereignty moved through the heart of Pharaoh. We say, okay, well, that's great. It's good for Israel. But that just doesn't seem just for Pharaoh, Right? Well, if you go back and read the Exodus narrative, it's interesting because uh, 17 times it talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Nine of those times, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Seven of those times, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. A few other times, you can't tell who's hardening the heart. The point is this, Pharaoh had a hard heart. Pharaoh hated God. And so what did God do? He didn't override Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh wasn't taking a direction he didn't want to go. God used the hardness of his heart. And he channeled it to effectively display his glory, rescue his people, and preserve them. So, let me illustrate. Proverbs 21, it says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. All right, so let's unpack that narrative for just, that that metaphor for just a second. Water goes where it's going to go, right? Water flows. It flows downhill, follows gravity. So when you're building a house, a plumber comes and they put in pipes so that they can channel that water so that it's constructively used. You break a pipe and what happens? Well, it's destructive, but it's going somewhere. What does God do? He takes the, the bent naturally of a king, Pharaoh in this case, and he channels his heart, right? God is not overriding what Pharaoh wanted to do. He's just using the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his purpose which is to bring salvation, rescue, deliverance to his people. And if he hadn't, Israel wouldn't exist. So remember, what's the question we're asking and answering? Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Paul says, pause, Israel wouldn't exist if God hadn't acted on their behalf. Church, you wouldn't exist if God didn't intervene and act on your behalf. Because the channel of your water is flowing away from God. In fact, That's where everyone's water is going, away from God. Unless God intervenes and rescues, we all move ourselves away from God. So God in his sovereignty rescued or preserved his people. Paul's third argument, his sovereignty encompasses all of creation. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, Paul switches to a new illustration from Pharaoh to a potter and clay. And I want you to turn, hold your place in Romans nine and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, because Paul's drawing from this, this visual metaphor that was given to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18. So uh, I'm guessing that nobody had a quiet time in Jeremiah this morning, or maybe like in the last 10 years. And you should, I wouldn't encourage it because I mean, it's just depressing. Like you need to read Jeremiah once in a while to know what's in there, but it's really sad. It's lots of judgment. And I'm saying all that to give you a minute to find Jeremiah because you don't know where Jeremiah is, but it's about in the middle, right? It's it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the big prophets, right there in the middle. You find them. Jeremiah smack dab there, right? Page 716. Yeah, in my Bible. All right, so you're there. Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the illustration, and this is the text that Paul's drawing from for Romans chapter 9. It says the word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah, saying. Arise, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. potter's making a vessel. It just starts folding in, and it doesn't look good, so he just mashes the clay up again, and he makes another vessel. God says, let me explain the point of this illustration verse 5 and the word of the lord came to me saying can i not o house of israel deal with you as this potter does declares the lord behold like the clay in the potter's hand so are you in my hand o house of israel at one moment i might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot to pull down or to destroy it if that nation against which i have spoken turns from its evil I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at in another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. And if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. So what God's saying is this, that the, the clay, the big lump of clay, that's all of humanity. And God has authority over all of humanity because he made all of humanity. And so he takes a piece of that and he's fashioning a nation. And he says, I want to bless this nation. And then they turn away from him. He says, I'm not going to bless you anymore. He says, I'm going I'm to bring judgment on this nation because of its sin. And then they repent. And they turn to God. And he says, instead of bringing judgment, I'm going to bring blessing. And his point is this. God has the right and the responsibility because of his character to bring blessing or judgment on all nations. And he has the authority to do that. And what he wants to do point in Jeremiah is what he wants to do is he wants all to turn so that they can be blessed. Verse 11, he applies this specifically to Israel, and he says, So then, now, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. He says, Israel, please turn back. In the context of the book of Jeremiah, this is right before they're about to go into, into exile. And so, the reason Jeremiah is such a depressing book is he's saying, if you don't turn around, you're going to go into exile. Why? Because there's immorality in your midst and idolatry, and there's injustice to the people of the land. And you're, you're greedy and materialistic, and you're not giving the land its rest, so please turn away from your sin. Please turn away from your sin. Please turn away from your sin. Now, notice the people's response. I'm going to put it up here so we can all look at it together. It says, but they say, it's hopeless. Why? Because we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. <laughs> oh, this is just terrible news. Why? Because we're stubborn. It's not terrible news because God doesn't give them, give them an opportunity to repent. He's begging them to repent. But he has the right, the responsibility, the, to the authority to bring blessing or to bring judgment. Because all the world is his. Right? All the world is his. So, now turn back to Romans chapter 9. Paul's point in his illustration is not that God uses his sovereignty to override human choice and human responsibility. That's not the point of Romans chapter 9 or of this illustration because in fact, God hardened Pharaoh's heart but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh had a hard heart and God channeled it and used it to rescue his people. The lump of clay, which is Israel, is choosing to not repent also and God has the right and the responsibility, the authority to bring discipline. But what Paul is saying here is God chooses to hold off, and he's patient, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, just like in Jeremiah's day. God's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. He's showing mercy when he has the right to judge and the responsibility to judge, but he's holding off on judgment so that he can extend his mercy to more. Read with me verse 22 again. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and willing to make his power known, instead... He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, allow me to get grammatical for just a second. Okay, Some of you, I had one person, not some of you, one person came up and said, hey, this is awesome. I love the grammar at the 915 service. So, okay, for the one, we're going to be grammatical for just a minute. The, the phrase here, when he says here, uh, prepared for destruction, uh, that is in the either passive or middle voice. So what that means is this. The verse is not saying God prepared them for destruction. That would be the active voice. It is saying either they prepared themselves for destruction, that's reflexive, or they are fit for destruction, in other words, it's appropriate that they be judged. Right? So the verse is not teaching this double predestination where God creates people just to destroy them. It's saying what's appropriate Is that they would be judged, but instead of immediately bringing judgment, what is God doing? He's withholding judgment, withholding judgment, withholding judgment so that he can extend his mercy to more and more and more. That is Paul's fourth point. You're just going to have to believe me. Okay, fourth point is this. We trust God because his sovereignty extends his mercy. Okay. We trust God because his sovereignty, go back one here go back to his sovereignty extends his mercy chapter 9 verse 22 what if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he also called not from among Jews only but also from among Gentiles as he also says in Hosea I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word quickly on the earth, thoroughly. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. The church? Good news, bad news. God is not fair. God isn't fair. Meaning, when we think of fairness, we think everybody gets treated the same. That's not that's not how God works, It's not how God functions. We're we're all vastly different. Some of you are black, some of you are white, some of you Asian, some of you are Hispanic. Some are old, some are young. You're born in one era, you're born in another era. Some of you were born into wealth. Some of you were born into poverty. Some of you have ascended you know, in the socioeconomic ladder. Some of you haven't. Some of you are absolute geniuses. The rest of us are average, right? Everybody, We're all different. God doesn't treat all of us the same because we don't actually need fairness. What we need is mercy. Right? We need to not receive what we deserve. But there's something in us that we say, I want justice for him, but mercy for me, right? You're driving down the road and somebody just comes flying by you. What do you think? Come on, what do you think? Where's the cop? Right? <laughs> Where's the cop? I hope the cop's near. I hope he catches them. You know, when I say to Tristy, we're, you know, on the highway, somebody flies by, I go, all right, clear him out, man. Just clear him out, right? And I'm just waiting. i It's like, oh, yeah, this will be awesome. Like, whoo, you know lights go on oh that was just a just a rush Like right? the endorphins are popping justice but then when i go by a police officer and i look at my speedometer i go oh that's a little high i think hope there's nobody by him yeah, i hope he wasn't paying attention he's drinking his coffee right i'm like i oh, no. don't if he pulls me over which might have happened before <laughs> i think oh you know be merciful because and i go through all my list of excuses i don't want justice for him but mercy for me Cowboys are not in the playoffs. It's a great injustice, right? Uh, I grew up, as you know, in New York. And I was literally the only Cowboys fan in my entire school, right? I had all the gear. I had a Cowboys jacket and a stocking cap and a Bob Hayes jersey. And some of you don't even know who Bob Hayes was. Fastest man alive. Played for the Cowboys. Like, man, I, I was all in. And I was persecuted for my faith in the Cowboys. I probably was the only Cowboys fan, like, in the entire state of New York. I mean, I've been with them. I am with them. And it is an injustice. It is the ref's fault that the Cowboys are not in the playoffs, right? Bad calls. Well, nah, you know. I, go, I, I, want, I want justice for the other team, but I want us, no flag on Cowboys. That's the point of the book of Jonah. Jonah wants justice for the Ninevites and mercy for himself. He wants God to judge the Ninevites. He hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrians. And it's just bugging him that God might actually let him live. God might actually have compassion on him, just kills Jeremiah. So he goes and he sits on the top of the hill and he's just waiting, just hoping that God will change his mind and judge him. And he's waiting and it's hot and he's sweating and he's miserable. And so God causes a plant to grow up and it's covering Jonah. And Jonah's like, I love this plant. Like this is an amazing plant, my plant. I love my plant, right? And then God causes a scorching wind, the plant withers. And Jonah's just angry. He's like, I just I want to die. This is terrible. This is terrible. And God goes, Jonah, you don't get it. Do you not get what we're doing here? You're not like me. Shouldn't I withhold judgment? Shouldn't I be patient judgment? Because I made these people. They're in my image, and I want them to be in relationship with me. Shouldn't I give them an opportunity to repent? They don't know their right hand from their left hand. You love a plant more than you love people. Whoa. What is our God like? He keeps promise. He keeps faith. He withholds judgment. Because the fact is, remember, we we worked through Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. There's not even one. Our water flows away from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Unless God intervenes on our behalf, we would be apart from God. We need his mercy. We don't need Fair and we don't need justice. We need His mercy. Mercy of a promise-keeping God. Now that's that's a that's a lot of theology. We've Covered a lot of ground. Um, I want to give you a really simple, uh, practical application to come from this. Um, first, I want to encourage you to memorize Second Peter three verse nine. This is a really important verse in the New Testament because it uh, it's just such a beautiful illustration of of how God feels about people. So it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Context in, in 2 Peter 3 is that um, God's not setting everything right. He's not judging sin and people are going, well, I guess the promise of his coming. It's just not going to happen. It's never, God's not going to set things right. And Peter says, wait, God's not as slow as you count slow. If it feels slow to you, there's a reason. It's because God loves people, and he wants to give them an opportunity to come to repentance. So I want to to encourage you to memorize 2 Peter 3, verse 9 this week. And as you're memorizing it, you know, write it on three-by-five and paste it on the mirror in your bathroom, right? Carry it in your pockets. You're thinking on it. I want you to meditate on a couple of thoughts. First is this. uh, We can trust God because he always keeps his promises. So you're in really difficult circumstance, and you'd like God to set everything right, and he's not setting everything right. He will. Okay, he will. You can trust him. And if he's holding back from setting all things right and there's lots of brokenness in our world everywhere, it's because he wants more and more people to come to repentance. Second thing I want you to meditate on is this. We can be merciful because God is merciful, right? We can be merciful because God has shown us mercy and we want to be like God. And if he's extending his judgment extending his mercy, withholding his judgment toward those who have rejected him, then we can do the same. So I want you to make a list this week. Friends and family who don't know Jesus and who need God's mercy, and I want you to start praying for them by name and praying for them daily. As we close, I want to give you an opportunity just to by name, pray for a few of those people. So if you would, please bow with me. We're going to pray for our friends and our family need God's mercy. I'll give you a few moments quietly before the Lord to pray, and then I'll pray for us. Father, thank you that we can trust you to keep your promises. You will keep your promises to Israel. You will keep your promises to us. You will set all things right. We thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that you're a patient God and you're merciful and you're, you're withholding judgment so that you can extend your mercy. And I pray, Father, that you would make us more and more like you. I ask you, Father, just to break our hearts for the people around us who don't know Jesus give us a softness toward those who are even angry toward you and who are rejecting you. Lord, let us us pray for their hearts to be softened. Father, I ask you to give give us opportunity to be with people like that and and love them and serve them, show them your mercy. Father, I pray that even this semester, we would see, see some friends and family cross over out of death into life. Lord, I pray That you would make us into people like you. People who are kind and gentle and gracious and merciful as we've received mercy may we give mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen.